We thank you that you have supplied for us our chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and against him every living stone is fitted into the temple, as it were, by your design, a household of God, saints who have been justified by that same cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who bore our sin in our place. We worship him and glorify him this morning. He is the very basis upon which a solid life, an individual soul, the hope for a future, the recreation of the world and the new heavens and new earth one day, and the hope of even a nation and a people can be built in upon Him alone. We confess this today. We also recognize inasmuch as He is that cornerstone that He will not be ignored, and you either fall on that stone or you are crushed to powder by its presence. Lord, this is a fearful thought indeed. First of all, we thank you for ransoming us from the judgment we deserve by your merciful grace. Secondly, we pray that you would equip us to proclaim this message to the lost, lest the day of your arrival, the day of the Lord, the day of your judgment come and they find themselves lost and without hope in this godless world because they have avoided the one way of salvation, the narrow road that leads to life, namely confession of sin and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness thereof and the joyful reunion with God the Father because of the one mediator, sacrifice, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word that you would deepen our appreciation for these truths and that you would equip us to proclaim them to a lost world who needs them so. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we gather together, returning to the anchor of our souls, and the revelation thereof found in His Holy Word. I'd like to spend some time this morning in Isaiah 59, an occasional sermon that is a sermon particular for a moment that we find ourselves in. We've been doing more of these lately, as our world seems to be on such unstable foundations. Nevertheless, we find in our Scriptures that when the earth totters, it is the Lord that studies its pillars. But one of the studying influences for the world and for our own souls is indeed the buttress of truth, the church equipped, and to do that by the Word of God itself. So this morning we turn to Isaiah 59 to steady our souls in uncertain times. The title of this morning's message is Smelling Salts. Smelling Salts. I wonder if everyone knows what that is. Perhaps not. So if you were unconscious or if you were out cold or if you were sleeping, let's say, one method to get you awake would be to put a concoction of chemicals, ammonia, and something else, and put it under your nose. And those salts or that concoction, those chemicals, would go into your respiratory system, and suddenly it would trigger your mind awake, and you'd be instantly alert. So that's an analogy. It's a metaphor to describe the purpose of Psalm 59. The message of the prophet is intended to be a smelling salt, as it were to snap to sobriety a culture of people or an individual who is uh, lost in a stupor of sort of drunken sinfulness. And the word of the prophet comes as a smelling salt to jolt him awake from his dilapidated state under the influence of these corrupting things and, and to open his eyes to the truth of his condition and the truth of the Lord himself. The aim of this morning's message is to apply the perspective of uh, per, the uh, perspective correcting standard, if you will. So the standard of Scripture is able to correct our perspective. So let us apply the corrective or the perspective correcting standard of Scripture to our day. And I find this is needful when we live in, in an era of such moral and otherwise confusion. 
So would you stand with me once again out of reverence for God's word today as we hear his holy word proclaimed? Listen and behold the smelling salts awaking us from a drunken stupor of sin, the holy word of God, restoring our attention to him and his glories. Isaiah 59, 1, here is the holy word of truth. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justice justly, no one goes to law honestly, they, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, they are swift to shed innocent blood, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, destruction and desolation are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, there is no justice in their paths, they have, not made their, or they have made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan. We moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions have multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Verse 15b, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. For out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Absolutely saturated 
with a powerful truth. Isaiah 59 comes to us ringing as clear as a bell in 2020, as true and relevant as it was the day it was written thousands of years ago. I'm sure you'll agree if your ears are open to hear the holy word of God. These are smelling salts for a culture lost in the stupor of sin. Today, we have a little bit more territory in the scripture to cover, but because of the nature of this moment and this time in our history, and because of the value of Psalm 59, instead of picking a section from it, I decided to tackle the whole thing. We'll see how it goes. The occasion for this sermon comes by way of a week of protests and riots sparked in our state. We live in Minnesota, for those listening beyond our boundaries here. And this follows some three months of global fears and lockdowns due to a viral pandemic scare labeled COVID-19 or coronavirus. I'm sure you can agree with me, it feels at times like our world is coming apart at the seams. A horrifically disturbing video of a law enforcement officer with his knee on the neck of a now dead man supplied the spark that has inflamed passions in a tinderbox of economic emergency and social instability. It's as if all these factors are coalescing for a perfect storm, just waiting for an excuse to explode. And it seems that we found something of a tipping point this week in the events that took place all around us, even in our state, and then branching out, spreading to many cities in our nation. Hence, voices all over the newsreels, if you're following the news, it's almost hard not to. You're wondering what's going on. You're looking for reports from the front lines, these different events. Voices all over these media outlets are screaming for justice and burning down their own communities to give vent to their outrage. The juxtaposition, note, they're screaming for justice and burning down their own communities. Cooler heads and well-meaning advocates for the cause of truth and consistent standards have suffered their voices suffocated by anarchy and lawlessness. Suddenly, everybody's paying attention to the fires burning at a post office at a police precinct building, and stores with uh, innocent uh, owners watching their life's dreams and investment go up in flames. Naturally, our souls can panic in times like these. We can perhaps relate in times like this more to a drowning man whose impulse is to thrash violently against the towering waves. I'm here to tell you that the scripture that we have read today And these scriptures in your hands this morning is your life preserver. If we live in tumultuous seeds of uncertainty as judged by the newsreels, note, pay attention, consider, remember, in your hands is your life preserver. Cling to it. Get your bearings. Find in it the rock for your understanding, for your hope, for your certainty, for your faith, for your assurance. The scriptures in your hands is your life preserver. Cling to it, get your bearings, and then reach out to someone struggling next to you, directing them to the safety of God's never-changing, never-returning void, and never-withering word. Isaiah wrote to a people under the looming shadow of God's judgment. And I sense today this relates to our circumstances as well. Isaiah writes to us, that is to say, who again are under a looming shadow of God's judgment, as far as I can tell. Isaiah, as a prophet, served the ministry of the voice of God to the people. He served prophetically to both, uh, he served pro- prophetically as both covenant prosecutor and herald of gospel good news. Isaiah acted like a prosecuting attorney, bringing an indictment, a case against those who had broken their covenant 
commitment to the Lord, a nation that had fallen into apostasy and rebellion. But he was more than just a prosecuting attorney, if you will. He was also the voice of the gospel good news. He was a herald of a message of hope and a redeemer to come. Praise the Lord. The words we read today were addressed to a nation returning to the ruins of their burned out civilization, literally and figuratively. Having endured the disciplinary exile of 70 years, the people are returning, and this ties into our Nehemiah series. In fact, these words, the latter third of Isaiah, is addressed to the people who are returning. It's specific messages for them under the conditions in which they lived. His writings provide the foundation upon which Nehemiah built covenantal renewal and reformation, as we've studied the covenant renewal ceremony of Nehemiah 9 in some depth in recent weeks. The context of our chapter today in Isaiah 59 is a message of cultural self-awareness exhorting the nation to objectively evaluate their condition according to the universal absolutes of God's revealed word that they might follow him and live. You've been in exile for 70 years. What went wrong? What a great ask. A wise, only a stupid man would avoid it. A wise man would pay attention. If there was a means to objectively evaluate their condition according to a universal standard, an absolute, they might read God's word, they might understand and apply it and live. That was a message that Nehemiah carried forward as well. There's a heading for my message this morning I want to give to you along these lines. Post exile evaluation entailed the following. So after the exile, upon return to the land, as the people are getting an objective account of why they were in the situation they were in and how to avoid it in the future, this involved an evaluation of the covenant and their standing by it and then a repentance to its terms. Post-exile evaluation. Now before I give you the three points underneath that, let me just give you uh, a note of illustration. So I called um, our local sheriff uh, Scott Goddard in recent weeks and communicated to him concerns about the status of the church, its right to gather and proclaim God's word in the midst of these restrictions that have come as a result of the scare and the pandemic and so forth. We had what I judge is a good, productive conversation. And he, one thing he and I were agreed of for sure, that after all the dust settles of the era that we're in right now, a wise person would have a sort of post-COVID evaluation. What got us in the position that we're in How did we handle or mishandle the situation? And what can we learn by way of lessons for the future? That would be a wise approach as we begin, as we live in these very uncertain, chaotic times. And the most important evaluation, let me suggest to you in our post-COVID analysis, if you will, is to learn the response or the understanding of our situation with respect to the law of God, His purposes in Scripture, and what it's like to live under the looming shadow of judgment, where we should turn and where we should stand if we live in a day where God in His providence is allowing the nation to some degree to come apart at the seams to teach us a very valuable lesson that you build on any other foundation to your own peril, destruction, and social suicide. So repent and turn to the foundation of any nation and individual's hope, the rock Jesus Christ, which has never changed and stands in Zion as it were, as a fixture immovable upon which a life can be anchored and stand firm in every trial and in every storm, and the same goes for a nation. At this time, in Isaiah's day, post-exile evaluation entailed these three principles. Number one, reviewing the covenant lawsuit. Going back over the covenant, and their indictment accordingly, and seeing by its standard where they fell short. 
Secondly, and by the way, the preaching of the law of God, even today, falls into this. When the law of God is preached in clarity and truth, it's basically delivering an indictment. It's showing the sinner where he falls short. It's a covenant lawsuit, as it were. You are in a broken relationship with your creator, and by this standard, how do you, sh- how do you stand up? And if you find yourself falling short, as all men do, we all fall short of the glory of God, or wicked, depraved, poison of asps under our tongue, as the apostle writes, then we know that we are sinners and then we cry out for a savior. But gospel comes by way of law first, reviewing the covenant lawsuit. Number two, post-exile evaluation entails realizing the social fallout, that is the the society-wide consequences of breaking covenant with the Almighty. And this would be, in in the context of Isaiah 59, a corporate confession of sin. In Nehemiah's day, the same pattern was followed. We need it today, I suggest. A corporate confession of sin, realizing the social fallout. And then number three, welcoming the day of the Lord. Verses 15b through 18 are all revolve around this concept of the day of the Lord, His coming in both salvation and judgment, and how those who long for the coming of the Lord welcome that day and understand what it means. So those are the three main points today in our message in Isaiah 59 that I'd like to emphasize. Post-exile evaluation entails the following. Number one, a cultural appraisal. Under this primary point, reviewing the covenant lawsuit. Now, notice in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, before the author, before the prophet begins detailing certain sins and predisposition to those sins and uh, illustrating the corruption in the land, he opens with this statement, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or is ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Now, I want you to see how this people, in their sinful stupor, had mistaken their separation from God with His absence. In other words, this is prevalent today as well. People think that God is impotent, powerless, non-existent, indifferent, or disabled, because things are falling apart around them. You know, even this week, I think it was this week or maybe last week, we heard another story. Isn't it interesting how pagan news outlets love to cover stories of apostasy, falling away from one's once confessed faith. And there was a musical artist, lead singer for a band called Hawk Nelson, that declared on social media that he no longer believes in God. He's going to be honest to the whole world. And this was very, this was picked up and became a popular news story. And if you look at the reasons for his Uh, self-professed loss of faith, you will find that he could not find or he could not justify how a loving God would send people to hell or how a good God would allow such evil in the world. And what he was missing is what the people here were missing. He had mistook separation from God as his absence. No, the Lord is here in a sense, but you are under his looming shadow of judgment because you have broken covenant with him. You are enduring under the righteous act of God and his holiness revealed in punishment sometimes when you live in a day where people disregard him. In other words, it would be horrific. It would be an absolute tragedy if in our post-COVID evaluation we failed to realize that the reason that our world was descending into such chaos, anarchy, uncertainty, hardship, and abuse, and uh, evil, and wickedness, is God, in His judgments, 
is allowing us the fruit of our own devices so as to show us that the fruits of sin are wicked, evil, sour, and they lead to death. If God gives us a little taste of the wages of sin, I pray in His mercy it will cause us as a people to turn to Him. If God wanted to abandon America altogether, let's say, perhaps He would allow us to feel fit, uh, fat, rich, dumb, happy, and fulfilled in our lawless godlessness. But no, in His mercy, He has extended to us a taste of our medicine so that we might perhaps grow sour to the things of this world, gain an appetite for returning to Him, repent, and place our faith in the Lord once again. Don't mistake the Lord allowing certain evils and afflictions to fall upon us as shortness of His hand. He can save. He has offered a Savior. He will save for all who turn to Him. And don't mistake your unanswered prayers as Him not hearing or His ear being dull. The Lord may have higher purposes than your short-sighted request. Indeed, recognize in times such as we have in our day, just as it was at the time of the exile, the people's iniquities have made a separation between them and their God. And in order for us to be reconciled to a holy God, those iniquities must be dealt with. And this chapter will close with the way that they are dealt with. They are dealt with by the Redeemer. Separation and ab- or absence, don't confuse the two. Recognize the situation that we're in. Now, reviewing the covenant lawsuit, verse 3. Hey, kids, you want to play the stop game? All right, kids, here's what you're going to listen for. Listen for a body part, okay? A part of the body. When you hear me say a part of the body, tell me to stop. Everybody ready? For your hands are defiled with blood. What was it? All right. And And your fingers with iniquity. What was the second one? Fingers. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters. Very good. Good job, you guys. Hands, fingers, lips, and tongue. You correctly identified four body parts. No, <laughs> you get, game's over. You did awesome. Extra credit for that last response. Verse 3 and 4. Now listen again. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingertips with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. So there are four body parts that the author uses here to illustrate intention, corrupt intentions. Now we have four body parts in two categories, things we say and things we do. Hands and fingers represent what we do, lips and tongue represent what we say. The question is, what would you do if you had the Ability to say what you want to say and do what you want to do with no consequences. If the answer is burning down buildings in Minneapolis, then God is revealing in this intention, in, or in this moment right now, the corrupt intentions of man's heart. His hands, his fingers, his lips, and tongue are tainted. What he says and what he does are driven by corrupt, sinful goals and ambitions. Now, this is paired with several applications of these faculties. So, in other words, at this time, how were people's hands and feet, tongue and lips used? Verse 4 answers, No one enters suit justly, so unjust use of the law, perverting the standard of righteousness, using it as leverage for your own selfish ends. 
No one goes to the law honestly. In other words, people are more interested in their selfish desires than they were in integrity and righteousness. And again, or furthermore, verse 4, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. People are more committed to their own harebrained contradictory opinions that are as emphatic today as they are compromised or contradicted tomorrow, and they ignore all the while the Word of God. In so doing, back to our verse, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. All their plans, their plotting, their intentions of their heart serve their own ends, so the seeds of social disorder bring on the roof of the society around them as the ashes of their wickedness goes to seed. No one enters lawsuit justly or suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity. So in this post-evaluation, post-exile evaluation, there is an indictment. There are charges that are brought against the people. Remember, one of the roles of Isaiah is a prosecuting attorney. What is an indictment? Dictionary definition is good. It says, a formal written statement framed by a prosecuting attorney charging a person or party with an offense. And here Isaiah delivers by the word of God, uh, according to the word of God, a formal written statement uh, as a prosecuting attorney using the law standard of the covenant relationship of God's people with him to bring charges against a party. Those who have broken faith with the Lord are guilty of the following. And, and that uh, they're guilty of what we've just read. Entering into uh, lawsuits justly, abuse of the law, lack of integrity, and uh, abiding by their own ideas rather than the word of God, conceiving mischief, giving birth to iniquity. So corrupt intentions. Second or uh, third point under reviewing the covenant lawsuit, not only does Isaiah reveal the corrupt intentions of these people by this example, but also he identifies a poisonous economy, verses 5 and 6. Listen to these illustrations. They hatch adder's eggs. Uh, quick trivia question, kids in the room, does anyone know what an adder is? What kind of animal is an adder? Yeah, you guys get a gold star. Sonny and Theo, thank you. They hatch adder's eggs. Adder is a poisonous snake. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. And so if you crush an egg, you can't make a nice omelet out of it. No, a viper is hatched, and it's poisonous, and it presents a risk to your health and life. Verse 6, their webs will not serve as clothing... In other words, these are illustrations about product, productivity and economy. That which they produce is not useful. It's of no long-term value. In fact, it's self-destructive. It says, men will not cover themselves with what they make. In other words, all their effort, all their ingenuity, all of their ambitions are sewn into what one prophet said, I think Malachi, a pocket full of holes. They are not return, receiving a return on their investment. The economy is crashing. The Dow Jones of that era was uh, in this steep decline, if you will. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. These are poetic descriptions of a poisonous economy. What do the people demand? Well, they demand as products the very things that destroy their soul. You know, does this relate to our day? Uh, today... I, or uh, these days, uh, this week, I was listening on my podcast feed to someone sounding the alarm that in these times, social media has figured out a way 
where people can prostitute themselves by way of streaming services. And suddenly news stories of making ten, uh, five figures a month are coming out all over the place. And this is one example of a poisonous economy. The very thing that the people, things that people are producing serve as a dissipating influence to collapse the foundation and integrity and to break down the covenant relationships among them. Think of the poisonous economic pursuits of our academia these days, teaching young people by way of all kinds of corrupt in, uh, presuppositions about science or the nature of things, uh, uh, social justice in some cases, so-called, or in other cases, uh, identity politics, all the way to redefinition of marriage and all of these things uh, that we see by way of absolute confusion as to sexuality and identity and gender and so forth. These are the mental machinations. This is the productivity of our scholarly class. But what does it do? It sows seeds of discord and it sows into the fabric of our society, corrupting influences. It rots us from the inside out. The very things that we produce become our own poison pill. This is basically a picture in these illustrations here of social suicide. This was what was happening then. The people in their productive capacity were producing nothing but poisonous snakes, and they were weaving webs that would entrap them. And what they produced could not even support them in the long haul. Basically, the results and consequences of their sin were economic collapse. And in our day, we are experiencing something of this as well. Because of the poisonous ground of our thinking and our principles that we operate, we have begun to reap the whirlwind of a poisonous economy. Corrupt intentions, poisonous economy, and finally, barbaric lawlessness, 7 and 8. Again, we're going over the indictment, reviewing the covenant lawsuit. Why were the people exiled? What was wrong? What went wrong? Verses 7 and 8 continue along these lines by detailing barbaric lawlessness. It says, Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. And here... The pictures, the analogy and illustration is along the lines of direction or ways, conventions. We have references to highways or paths or crooked uh, roads and so forth. Roads, highways, and paths refer to the conventions of a society, the way that we uh, plot our way forward, the pursuits, the goals, the intentions and so forth, the ways, the conventions, the, de- uh, the direction, the operating the, uh, procedures, the conventional means that we have in our society are referred to, or that's what ways and roads and uh, highways and so forth illustrates. And all of these, in this summation, in this indictment, in this case, they betray a barbaric lawlessness. Where are they running toward? Are they running towards productivity? taking a good heed to the Word of God, to steward well, to take dominion, to be responsible in the realm that God had given them? No. Instead, whenever people had the opportunity, their feet ran to evil. They were swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. We see this today quite literally. 
We've watched the news the last few days and found desolation and destruction filling our own streets. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. And so you see by this measure that the people, their pursuits and goals, instead of pursuing that which God had intended for the purpose of government to defend innocent life all the way back to Genesis 9, now they were passing laws that would condemn the innocent to death. Now they were giving themselves permission in their society to take the life of those who are least able to defend themselves, let's say. Often in Scripture, we see injustice described as when the orphan and the widow are trampled under the tyranny of the autocratic rule or the people's preferences or the goals and the values of society. And we have this today, may I submit to you. One needs to think no further than the atrocity, the tragedy, the Holocaust, the great blight on our modern era of abortion to make this point in our day. You know, this today or this week we saw that image of a knee of an officer of the law pressing into the neck of a victim of his uh, abuse, let's say, there on the street, and it snuffed his life out. And we all cried out collectively as a culture, injustice, injustice. But how many of us are aware of the knee of abortifacient contraceptives, of surgical procedures that is on the neck, pressing down with all the weight of our lawless society and our barbaric rule upon the neck of the unborn, bearing down, snuffing out their life. And we do it when children, in years past, the infants would often be under the assault of the government. We see that as a pattern in the wicked, demonic account of Satanism run wild in a society. But in our day, we have rolled back the age further and further and further, more innocent and more innocent with respect to the law, younger and younger until we cannot even hear their cry anymore. Blind and deaf to our own barbaric lawlessness. This is evidence that we fall guilty of covenant indictment. In this post-COVID evaluation era, in this post-riots in the inner cities in America era, what should we review? We should review the covenant lawsuit of Scripture, which holds up God's righteousness and His standards as the object, as the, or the foundation upon which a society is to be built and their intentions and their economy and their pursuits are to be judged. And we should see that by this standard we are falling short. And it troubles me so because at a time when we need the gospel to ring with authority preaching the law of God and repentance most boldly and prominently from the pulpits in this land, somehow, some way, our voice is being stifled as well. Will we as a church push the knee of suppression off our own necks so that we might proclaim the word of God? If they won't let us gather in our buildings, why not go and join a protest? Apparently, you won't get arrested. Why don't you go out on the street and preach and proclaim the law of God to those who are acting in this barbaric lawlessness? I think that would be a worthy cause. And we live in an era where it is needful. We need to hear the covenant lawsuit, the indictment read, that formal written statement charging us for our sins in America. We need it clearly laid out so that we can see that what we have interpreted as the absence of God is in fact separation from Him. And by our corrupt intentions and our poisonous economic fruit and our barbaric lawlessness, we are falling so far short of what God requires. So that is the preaching of the law 
in Isaiah's day, and it certainly relates to our own second major point, post-exile evaluation not only entailed reviewing the covenant lawsuit, but the people realizing the social fallout. Notice in verse 9 a shift in the pronouns. Therefore, justice is far from us. You see that personal pronoun now? Instead of the third person, as it were, or the declarative um, orientation of the words of verses 1 through 8, now the voice goes to the people in a confession. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. So, you see the shift, the change? Whereas before in 59.1, the people had assumed that God's hand was short, that he wouldn't save them, was powerless to provide an answer, or they assumed that his ears were dull, he did not hear their cries, now they have repented. Now they have, re- re- they have revealed by their confession that righteousness does not overtake them because justice has been pushed far away from them. And they were the ones responsible. They were the ones who did it. We hope for light and behold darkness. We walk in gloom. And notice verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those or like those who have no eyes. The people in realizing the social fallout are acknowledging the moral chaos of their situation. This is a corporate confession of sin. This, of course, dovetails Nehemiah chapter 9. In that covenant renewal ceremony, the people stood up and they uh, spent great portions of the day confessing their sin and the sins of their fathers. It's the same spirit here. When the people repented, they realized the consequences, the social fallout, and the shift in the pronouns indicates that they are now acknowledging, admitting how far short they have fallen. As we have noted in recent messages, these aspects of of repentance are prevalent there. They are admitting their sin, they're seeking forgiveness, and they're turning from their lawless ways. The first thing they do is acknowledge this moral chaos. And they describe it as stumbling about like a, a blind, semi-conscious, conscious, uh, conscious drunk man under the influence. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. You almost hear like an, uh, an, a zombie picture come to mind. Imagine zombies, irrational creatures, um, just milling around, not fully cognizant and aware. It says in verse 11, we all growl like bears, we moan and moan like doves, we hope for justice, but there is none. It's just this painful cry, this guttural reaction, this moaning, this visceral sense of pain, this blind and numb stupor that their drunkenness has brought down upon them. This is havoc, confusion. Moral chaos, a drunken stupor. The language evokes images of waking up with a hangover, a splitting headache, and your clothes clothes soiled with bodily fluids. All night you have been puking on yourself. You wake up in the gutter and you realize the moral chaos, the havoc, the confusion, the drunken stupor. No recollection or memory of where you were the night before. We grope For the wall like the blind, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Dead men, acknowledging this moral chaos. Remember the title of this message? 
smelling salts. What is this answer for a culture that is groping around in the darkness, even though it's noonday, that doesn't know uh, one thing from another, that is stumbling around and suffering under the consequences of their self-induced stupor like this? Like zombies under the influence of dilapidating sin. What is the answer? It is the smelling salts of God's Word. It is the clarity of His truth. Remember, we compared it also in the introduction to a life preserver? These people are thrashing around. Another image you could uh, uh, conjure up in your mind, you know, panicking in the water, drowning. But there is a life preserver. There is smelling salts for the drunken, the unconscious man. And so we throw that life preserver to our own souls, and we throw it to a world lost and discombobulated, and they cling on to it as God grants them grace to do so for their stability and salvation. Secondly, realizing social fallout, they begin to confess their covenantal treason. They confess their covenantal treason. Verses 12 and 13, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. In other words, the indictment of your law, your prophet, is correct. We have done all these things. Our transgressions, our sins, are multiplied before you. The cumulative case of us falling short of what you require, our a sin with the, sinning with a high hand and full knowledge of its evil has testified against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. We have no excuse. It's not that you are distant and dull and unable to save and can't hear. It's that we have transgressed and, deser- and we have well deserved this punishment. We have committed covenantal treason. Verse 13, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. The people are confessing. They're acknowledging their sin. They're doing so before God, first of all. They stand condemned by the proclamation of His law. And then they realize their sinfulness, their guilt, and they confess before Him. They say, our transgressions are multiplied before you. And they acknowledge that they have committed treason against the holiest king of all. You know, through the years, even in our nation, treason is a hanging offense, right? We, because we consider it a, such an atrocity to violate, to betray the very thing which is responsible for your livelihood, namely the government. That's an exalted view of treason, by the way. In other words, it's considered in some cases the greatest crime to betray or to violate or to spy against or to de- serve in an unhanded way and to undermine your nation. We can ask the question, how much more your God, the one who truly holds this universe together by the word of his power, you who rest in the palm of his hand, at his mercy, take your next breath. What do you suppose is worthy of treason against the one who truly has the government upon his shoulders, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Is his name nothing more in our culture than a cuss word, frequenting the lips of those who ignore him, despise him, belittle him, who hate his law, who hate his word, who are not interested in his salvation? Well, that's a mark of covenantal treason. The name of God ought to be preserved in all that it represents as reverent, sacred, and holy. You can judge the plight of the culture. You know its idols by that which it holds in high esteem. What does it hold sacred? What is untouchable? Well, it ought to only be the Lord, ultimately speaking, that is sacred. And to desecrate Him, to treat Him as low and common, 
and to disregard his word, to be irreverent about the things of God, to care nothing for his person, his power, his authority, his position, and his holiness is to multiply transgressions. It's to testify against ourselves. It's to transgress and deny him. It's to commit covenantal treason. Finally, the people discern their cultural bankruptcy in verses 14 and 15. Justice is turned back, they say, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Does, that, does this not relate to our day? If you look, if you, you know, do a quick search on the web for blogs, opinion pieces, and pundits, and commentary on what's going on right now, if you listen to interviews on mainstream news sources with so-called social scientists and academics that give, try to give an answer for the situation that we're in right now, you'll end up pulling out your hair at the confusion and the contradictory nature and the absolute absurdity and the irrational conclusions that our country is coming to, that those who are in prominent positions espouse. And we can say with the prophet or the people in the prophet's day, truly justice is turned back. People cry for it and then they commit injustices at the same time. That's moral confusion. That's, stu- that's uh, stumbling at noon in the twilight. That is complete uh, zombie-like behavior where we growl like bears and moan like doves and cry out irrationally and blind, not even able to find the wall to get our bearings. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. I mean, I think in some cases it's more likely that you would get arrested for so-called hate speech by declaring homosexuality a sin in a downtown area than it is in some cases to burn down a post office. What is wrong? Justice is turned back. It wasn't that long ago when even churches were, came under the heavy hand of government for simply proclaiming the gospel as is their right both by God's authority, which matters most, and the Constitution, number two. And their voices were silenced because ostensibly the threat of pandemic spread. However, for some reason, we've forgotten about the danger of this disease as thousands and thousands of protesters fill our streets. And what do people say? Well, they have a good point. In many cases, I don't agree with everything they do. Oh, isn't it just yesterday that you were saying churches shouldn't gather for fear of spread of this disease? But now the preachers of social unrest are allowed to proclaim their message unequivocally and suddenly people care a lot less about this disease and masks right now. What is going on? Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth has stumbled in the public square. Now, if there's one lesson you could take away from events this week, perhaps it is this. If I were to write a blog, hopefully it would be clear and governed by God's word. But I think the takeaway for me was something like this. Selective justice is no justice at all. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And a mark of his righteousness and truth, true biblical justice is its consistency and capable standard. Selective justice is no justice at all. Now, this goes for police departments. If a cop, a law enforcement official, is not a subject to the same laws that he is called to enforce, then there is a problem. And there is upside down and there's problematic situation by God's standards and it needs to be addressed. And I sense that there is something like that. You could ask this question and do an analysis of our systems today. You could ask this question, is a cop... Uh, justified to use lethal force? Is the justification for a cop to use lethal, lethal force the same as the justification for a citizen to use lethal force? If the answer is yes, then you have just laws. If the answer is no, you have room for reform. Why? 
because selective justice, partial justice, is no justice at all. God's standard applies to everyone. It is impartial. Now, if I preach that message on CNN tomorrow, I would get tons of amens across this nation, wouldn't I? But now, let's extend this same standard to rioters in the streets. Selective justice is no justice at all. If you're crying out for justice for this individual that you see the victim as the victim of tyranny, and then you burn down and destroy a person's private property who is not guilty of anything, what have you done? You, have, uh, you are promoting selective justice, and you're committing crimes punishable by the appropriate exercise of the law, all in the name of wanting righteousness to return to our streets, justice to return to our streets? I don't think so. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. Justice is consistent. It's defined by God. Listen, it is not a bumper sticker for blind public outrage. I submit that to you. Today, justice is a popular word, but it has been reduced to a bumper sticker for blind public outrage. That is not justice. Justice is the righteous dictates the immovable standards of God's rule. It is right and wrong. It is holy action. It is the foundations for a society. It is truth. It is the Ten Commandments. It is the Word of God. That is what justice is. And anything less will be a perversion, and it will show in its own folly that it is, in fact, self-destructive, self-contradictory, and it, in fact, shows by pit-digging the consequences of transgressing God's law. Remember in the Proverbs? If people go out and they name something justice that isn't and they, act, and they ad, uh, agitate for it, what will happen? The wicked will dig a pit and they will fall into it themselves. And we have seen evidence of this all around us this entire week and for this entire season of our existence. And it should reveal to us that our culture is bankrupt and we must repent. Have we realized yet as his church the social fallout and the consequences of moral chaos? Have we confessed our covenantal treason? Have we turned? Have we been aware? Have our eyes been opened? Are we discerning of the cultural bankruptcy that we find ourselves in? This is a necessary step. This is corporate confession of sin that we so need right now. Let me close this message with redemptive hope. Welcoming the day of the Lord. Post-exile evaluation entails reviewing the covenant lawsuit, realizing the social fallout. Number three, welcoming the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord always in Scripture is marked by two things, judgment and redemption. It is recompense or repayment for God's enemies, and it is salvation for those who are in covenant bond, in repaired relationship, who are in Him, as it were, in Christ, as it were. The Lord saw it, 15b, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. How does the Lord bring salvation by his own arm? Well, he does so in the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, takes on flesh and he comes as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Jesus Christ is the arm of the Lord extending salvation here by prophetic, by messianic prophecy and in the New Testament, in the gospel, fulfilled in time. It says, and his righteousness upheld him. Jesus Christ, who is the word incarnate, who is the way, the truth, and the life, his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, 
so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. When people are in distress, they cry out to the highest conceivable authority. The more fearful you are, the more ardently you cry out to the highest conceivable authority. Let me ask this question. What is the highest conceivable authority in this land? This is an indictment against conservatives in many cases. The highest conceivable authority, the one with the power to do something about it, when riots break out in the street is more often than not, in the minds of the average citizen, patriot notwithstanding, government. How many have heard Trump needs to call up the National Guard? They need to deliver troops, troops yesterday. ASAP, we need to step in. That's the only way we can achieve peace and stability. Now, mark my words, it may be just and right for the proper agents of justice to step in when justice has fallen in the public square, truth has stumbled in our streets. Yes, but you must recognize that your highest appeal and the highest conceivable authority and the one who has something to do something about the unrest in this world is Jesus Christ alone. If he is not gracious and merciful to allow even the government systems in our nation to turn us to a semblance of order, then the guns that are in the hands of those who are charged with our peace could actually create more chaos than anything else. What holds this nation together? Is it the army? Is it the military? Is it the administration? Is it a political ideology, a political party? Is it the uh, police officers? Is it uh, our citizenry? Is it those that we vote for in local positions of authority? No. Ultimately speaking, it is God who steadies the pillars of the earth, and he does it through the message of his Messiah and direct intervention in our affairs, providing the rock, the foundation, and the means of escape, the way of hope, the way of reconstruction, the way of reform, the way of repentance, and the way of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. This is the day of the Lord. And those who are trained to listen for its coming love the day of its appearing. Those who are trained to see what it looks like when God brings judgment and redemption, they love the sound of the marching footsteps of the armies of the Lord. When Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, assembled his armies to intervene. This is the testimony of all of history, is it not? Look in the Old Testament. When were the people secure and when were their battles won? It's when the Lord fought for them. His worshipers would go before, in some cases, those who bore the sword to tell them, to illustrate to them that if the Lord is not glorified, their efforts are futile. It is he who wins our battles. He is the one who reduced an army of thousands to just 350 because he's jealous for his glory. Is that about it? 300? I forget. In Gideon's day, and they decimate the Midianites in one night because God is the one fighting their battles for them. It was on purpose that God used in a people that by man's accounting was illegitimate, small in number, not very strong in the Exodus. Why? Because he would get the glory. And so it is today. The one who truly has the armored vehicle, if you will, to do something about the violences in the streets is Jesus Christ, who puts on a breastplate of righteousness and then gives to those who take hope in him his righteousness in exchange for their sins on Calvary. Who is the one that can, it is impervious to the bullets and the Molotov cocktails and the fires that are raging in the streets today. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ who wears the helmet of salvation on his head. And if you'll note, uh, this, these image, this imagery would be familiar to us if you've been reading Ephesians 6 lately, because Paul instructs us to put on the armor of God. But know that this is not just the armor of God, it is God's armor as it were. In other words, your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Your salvation is Christ's salvation. Your hope for opposition or uh, for opposing the enemy 
And doing so effectively is his word, and so on and so forth. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wraps himself in zeal as with a cloak. And we see this picture come to its full flower and fruition in the book of Revelation. There we see the zeal of Jesus in the imagery, in that vision that John sees. He has clothes that's glowing white and a sword proceeds from his mouth. He's girded about with his authority represented by uh, all of this imagery and eyes with flaming fire and so forth. And he goes forth to vanquish his enemies. This is the day of the Lord. This is his coming. This is messianic, messianic intervention. Messianic intervention by way of God's armor, yet there remains redemptive hope. In this is salvation promised for those who are in him. Verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Paul cites this exact verse in Romans 11, 26, and 27. You can read that later on your own time. He recognized Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of this text. A redeemer will come to Zion. And notice, to those in Jacob. Who are those in Jacob? Those who are covenantally bound, who are in relationship with the Lord. We can see by way of the trajectory of significant sons, the legacy of significant sons that we've been studying that in Jacob would soon give way to the son of Jacob, if you will, Jesus Christ. That is to say, those who are in Jesus and who turn from their transgressions embrace Jesus Christ as their redeemer, who will defeat their enemies on the individual level, their sin, but ultimately all other enemies as well, even death itself and every illegitimate authority, principality and power until he makes them his footstool and declares his kingdom absolutely consummate in the new heavens and new earth. This is our Lord. He comes on his day as our redeemer and the one who will bring wrath to his adversaries, recompense for the wicked and salvation for the covenanted. Finally, in verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, there's a Trinitarian context in our passage here. The Lord, Yahweh, is speaking. His spirit is referenced here. And of course, his redeemer is Jesus Christ as we mentioned, the second person of the Godhead. This is the covenant reiterated and established in this last verse. In other words, what is the source of hope? How will his people endure? How will he preserve a remnant? He will do so by his words in the mouth of his prophet, and then echoed in the mouth of the hearers, and then echoed in the mouth of their offspring, and then echoed in the mouth of their children's offspring. Is the word of God in your mouth, in your home, in your confession? Are you... Confessing your fear as sin, your confusion and your despair as sin, and are you returning confidently to the rock and foundation of your hope in the Scriptures, namely Jesus Christ? Is the testimony of your confidence in Christ sufficient to get us through this time of instability in our own nation? Is that evident to your family? Is it evident to your children? Is it evident to your neighbors? Is it evident to the world? One of the purposes of Isaiah 59 is to reinforce the confidence and the confession of the people of God, so that after they realize they've fallen short, after they confess their sins, and after they look for His coming, recognize their Redeemer, His word would be in their mouth, 
that they may say, the Lord, he is our God. He will vanquish evil. He will defend us against our foe. He will secure our salvation. And in him will be a redeemer sent in the fullness of time. And we have welcomed him in history in Jesus Christ our Lord, so that all that are in him, in Jacob, who turn from transgression, place faith in Christ alone, have the promise of ultimate hope in heaven one day and security in him, even if we must die in this life confessing this truth. Ultimately, we cannot be killed. Our souls are immortal as Christ will preserve them by the power of his own blood unto eternal life. Thus says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. These words were absolutely certain and sure for the people of Isaiah's day and forevermore. Just as certain and sure for 2020, the day in which we live, and as many years as he tarries on this earth, these words will continue absolutely sure forevermore. I beg you to take heed of them today, to build upon them, and to proclaim them in Jesus' name. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the reassuring foundation that your word gives us in uncertain times. Though we are weak and frail, nothing in and of ourselves, we're a house of cards blown about by the winds of change and uncertainty and wickedness and fallenness in this world. Though without you, Lord, we are nothing but a structure on sand. The storm comes and blows away. Nevertheless, our hope is in Christ. He is our rock. He is our salvation. And we confess that his foundation is sufficient, sufficient to save us from our sins and sufficient to ground a society in righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would give us a word for those who are so confused and lost in their transgressions and sins. Let us be faithful and diligent and able as we process your word and apply it in our thinking and our prayers and in our witnessing. Let us be able, Lord Jesus, to offer hope in these uncertain times to point out that these idols deserve destruction. In fact, they are oftentimes in flames by their very worshipers. And to turn to Christ, the one who will never be dethroned, who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the majesty on high, and who will perfectly reorder all things one day, just as he regenerates our heart, our hearts will regenerate this earth as a suitable habitation for all of his own. Lord, I pray for those in the hearing of this message, if they, find, if they do not have the assurance that they are in right relationship with you, if they are not born again and know it for certain, if they are not covenanted to you through their covenant head, Jesus Christ, if they not place faith in him to satisfy the wrath that their sin deserves, I pray that they would repent and turn to you right now and that they would seek out another believer to understand the way in which they should walk and to join a gospel-proclaiming church that they might have sufficient means of grace to stand in a day where the gospel is the only place of assurance and it is a message that the world so needs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.